Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today we've got another special guest, Chris Arendt. Chris at Chris Arendt on Twitter, editor at Newsarama, formerly Life Marvel MTV. And Chris is also a friend. Chris, welcome to the show. You want to tell us where you are now in the world and uh, kind of what you're doing? Uh, right now, I am the editor for Newsarama.com. It's one of the longest running uh, news sites about comic books. Uh, we got started in the late 90s on a service called Prodigy, if, if people remember that. Um, we transitioned over the years into our own site. I joined up as a freelancer in 2003, and I uh, worked here in, in a number of other places over the years. And then in 2015, I got hired on full-time as an editor. Awesome. So um, the main things I do as an editor is uh, edit, and I get to write from time to time, but most of my time is taking up. I like editing stories about comic books, about movies, TV shows, video games, like anything based on comics, and sometimes we veer into kind of genre-related um, topics like Star Wars, Aliens, um, things like that. Besides that, I write on the side. I'm working on a nonfiction book that I like to talk about, and I'm working on comics. Like It all kind of comes back to comics, like either writing about comics, writing comics, drawing comics. Like That's kind of takes up my whole life and takes up part of my like storage like around my house, too. So that's pretty much uh, what I do. Comics, that's your real house. How did you get started in comics? I started picking up comics uh, like anybody like growing up in like the 1980s probably would have is uh, getting them in one of the spinner racks at a gas station. Uh, for me, it was traveling cross-country from Florida to California. I picked up an issue of Transformers that I still have that my mom like wrote my name on in like, big cursive letters. So for a time, at, like when I thought myself a comics collector, I was kind of like, oh my god. But um, so I got into that. I had kind of some spells where I was really into it. And then I got out kind of like in high school and then came back in. And then basically like what I found is I get basically reacquainted with it at various points in life. And I've kind of learned a little bit more and kind of appreciate comics and find like other type of comics. And then it's kind of worked out into being what I do for a living. Cool. And did you want to tell us a little bit about like specifically what those roles are. I know you said you were an editor, but you also mentioned earlier that you, you fly around to go to conventions and these kind of things. Yes, it's a pretty <laughs> unique job. Like I was um, uh, recently at a doctor's appointment trying to explain to a podiatrist what my job <laughs> entails, and he just couldn't even comprehend it. But um, I kind of view it like if people know what Entertainment Weekly is or uh, Variety is for movies, like we do the same thing for comics. Like what we do is uh, we cover comics uh, seven days a week, primarily North American comic books, um, superheroes, but also like everything else, like The Walking Dead, Saga, Smile. So uh, what we do is we try to report the news and upcoming events surrounding comics. And it, uh, I'm interview people that are working in the industry in different facets. And we also try to explore like trends that are going on at the time um, for my job, like from 2003 to 2015, I was strictly a writer for uh, Newsarama and other places where I would just write, write, write. I like interview people. Uh, like you said, travel to conventions from time to time. Uh, since I became a staff editor here at Newsarama, I'm fortunate to uh, be able to go to more conventions. And um, what I get to do there is um, what people don't uh, realize in comics, 
pretty much about 90 to 95% of all people that work in comics work from home. So it's a very solitary experience. And uh, so when they go to conventions, it's kind of the chance for the comic creators to meet each other. And they also meet the fans at the same time. So uh, getting to go to a comic convention as a comics journalist is interesting because it's a real powder keg, like in a good way of just people being excited about comics and uh, kind of what you Comics is one of the mediums, unlike uh, movies or TV shows, where you have to do it by yourself. You have to read it by yourself. So um, getting to go to these conventions, I get to meet the people doing comics and also meet the people that are just really excited about comics. And there's um, there's also panels and news announced there. So when I go to conventions for work, I basically go to the panels and uh, report on what's going on. Sometimes kind of like a, a court reporter where I'm basically documenting it live and it's going out over the internet on social media and our own uh, website and sometimes I'm just getting information that I turn into feature stories down the road like either uh, later on during the convention or once I get back from the convention and I can kind of unpack like uh, mentally and physically to kind of talk about uh, like interesting things I find or just things that are popular the big questions that are being asked like what's not being asked uh, things of that nature that sounds like a ton of fun that sounds like my uh, dream life and did you say, I know you said you were working on a nonfiction book. Do you draw as well? Uh, when I first wanted to have a career, like in high school, like drawing comics was the thing. Like this was probably in the mid-90s uh, during the, the image explosion. Back then, I, I actually pitched to Marvel and the Wildstorm. That's a subsidiary of Image at the time and did tryouts. But I kind of got burnt out like once I was started going to college and was kind of explained like, kind of this is like how you make money and how it's hard to make money. So I kind of uh, gave up on the idea of drawing comics for a living, but kind of came back full circle to comics in uh, writing comics and writing about comics. Uh, for a time in the mid-2000s, I wrote a few uh, mini-comics and I wrote stories in anthologies, um, such as uh, Image Comics 24-7 Volume 2, as well as Comic Book Tattoo, a uh, Tori Amos-inspired anthology. Um, but I kind of put that on the back burner to basically focus full-time on writing about comics. It's kind of a two-edged sword because there there could be a little bit of conflict of interest in basically reporting on right. comics while you're trying to pursue a career in comics. So for a while, I just focused strictly on writing about comics. But I've, just in the past few months, I've been able to find kind of a, a way to do both that doesn't conflict, impinge, yeah, yeah, totally. that doesn't in, impinge on the other, but... Um, like, and I think that doing one also benefits the other as well. And I've uh, been lucky enough to meet many comic creators, uh, writers, and artists that I found out that uh, previously to creating comics had the same kind of thing where they were re uh, reporters writing comics, uh, things of that nature. And you've met a lot of people in your travels to Comic-Cons and that kind of thing. You mentioned on your website, Joss Whedon, Warren Ellis, Grant Morrison, Brian Michael Bendis, Joe Simon, uh, John Romita Jr., Mark Miller, and numerous others. What is that like meeting somebody like a Joss Whedon? And, and is there someone in particular that is like the experience was your favorite of all? Um, as a fan, it's pretty amazing just the for this job, but like uh, being able to talk to the people that I get to talk to, like by phone, by email in person at conventions, like you said. Um, but for my profession, I try to like put that behind me and just focus on the professional aspect of it and dealing with them as a subject. But there is sometimes where I, I get a little nervous around talking <laughs> to certain uh, creators. Some of them are the biggest creators in the world. Uh, some of them are just creators that are big to me that may not be 
top selling books, but just uh, maybe through their work and their interviews, they maybe they're kind of off putting or just made it seem to me to be difficult to approach. But that's um, one of the things for me, like, like I was recently in Chicago for C2E2 is just kind of meeting all these people that I interview over the phone and by email and just kind of putting a face to everybody's name, uh, basically talking to them, hanging out with them at the bar, trying to mix kind of professional in, in endeavors with personal endeavors, but also just enjoying it as a fan, but like, but also being able to know those boundaries. Like I'm fortunate to be friends with a number of comic artists and I've been taught that the number one rule is not to basically ask them for artwork because it's just, I'm inappropriate, but that's just um, one of those things that, that I try to keep separate, but I have bought artwork from like comic artists that I'm friends with, but I try to keep it professional and not to leverage what I do professionally into getting kind of the, what could be the cool perks. But there is a lot of cool perks to the job. I get a review copies. Like I said, I get to meet a lot of people. Um, what you said is probably the most favorite. Um, let me see. At uh, CE2E2, I got to spend some 20 to 30 minutes speaking with Brian Michael Bendis, who's uh, just signed on to take over DC Superman. And for people outside of the comics bubble, uh, like a claim to fame for him is he wrote the scene in Iron Man where uh, Nick Fury approached him after the credits to start the Avengers that kind of made all the individual Marvel movies um, interconnected. Like he wrote that. And wow. like I've interviewed him probably 20 times. Like uh, Chicago was the first time that we met in person. I was really able to have like we had a conversation for my website, uh, newsarama.com. But then after that, we were really able to have a personal conversation about some stuff that he'd written about in Iron Man and then the Miles Morales Spider-Man book that kind of touched me based on some personal history that I had. And we were able to bond over kind of where that came from, from him um, and kind of like how approaching it. So like to be able to have like a real personal 20 minute conversation with a guy that's really busy and that was really nice and you guys had a drink or no we did not have to uh, get, get to have a drink like he was being rushed from a dc comics panel to a sci-fi like tv gotcha. taping of some kind but he basically cut like 20 minutes of time out of his day to uh, walk around the convention floor with him and have this personal conversation about stories that's awesome what's your drink of choice when you do um i personally don't drink i tried drinking like and i realized that it takes so much to get me drunk that it's really, <laughs> like like it's kind of drinking to get drunk is too expensive for me and um but i i don't judge anybody that uh casually drinks and like and for people that go to conventions uh, once they go to enough they'll realize that all the real networking and like community bonding between comics creators and publishers takes place at the hotel bar like right after the convention and there's all sorts of meetings like you'll see people that you be surprised are talking to one another like having dinner like like you'll see marvel people talking to dc people you'll see i don't know just uh creators you wouldn't expect like uh mingling together like it's also like a good chance just to meet people who you normally wouldn't meet and get to have honest kind of conversations with them where they're um, they're not um kind of working on the convention floor because when they're on the convention floor that's that's their job. They're basically selling books or doing it as a kind of marketing for you to buy their product that's on shelf. So getting to the bar and just mingling and networking, it's like an off-the-clock thing, but it's a real good way to network. Kind of working online doesn't really fulfill that. Yeah, that's, that's such an awesome perk of the job. Um, let's go into the, the craft. Like, What's a day-to-day -day like when you're editing or writing? Um, for Newsarama, like I said, I started that in 2015. Um, I put in pretty much five, 10-hour days. Uh, I am currently in a central time zone location, but uh, Newsarama works on a East Coast time zone. 
because uh, Newsarama's parent company is based in New York, so I, I pretty much start around 9 a.m. Eastern time, and um, we basically, the job is pretty much three parts, is you're constantly basically scanning the news to see what's happening, to see what's being um, reported on. So like anytime a big announcement is made, or a trailer comes out, or a new comic book like is announced, or I don't know, just something personal from one of the creators happens that's newsworthy. And obviously, uh, myself and I have a uh, senior editor, uh, Mike Duran, who I work with basically over the internet, hand in hand. And we have a staff writer named George Marston, who does the same. And we kind of balance basically keeping on top of any breaking news and announcements with also basically doing feature stories about current events or uh, about something that just makes it relevant to today's topics. Like uh, a few months back, we did a story on Spider-Girl. She hasn't been published in several years, but her anniversary was recently, and she has a big cult following as a character, so we did a story on that. Uh, So we balance basically breaking news with uh, features that we think that our readership will enjoy And we also try to inject our own experience and our own kind of know-how from what we've learned in the industry in kind of uh, pieces, uh, looking at the um, the industry and kind of asking questions about why something is happening or why something isn't happening and just kind of be that voice for the fans to basically ask the questions that are being asked and trying to find out uh, concrete answers that aren't marketing spin, but are actual answers to questions or just reasons why there isn't an answer because some questions about why stuff does or doesn't happen doesn't have an easy answer so it's trying to basically explain that in stories like for a time we dabbled in doing like video content but we're primarily we just do text so we just write just write 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 uh, basically 10 hours a day five days a week and sometimes like nights and weekends when there's a breaking story like i'm always checking my phone to see if something is announced or something is changing or somebody is joining a new project and we uh, basically stop and like I've written for Newsarama while basically being driven down the highway 70 miles an hour. (laughs) Like I wasn't driving, like my wife was driving, but we had an internet connection. So I was able to file like a breaking news story. Um, I uh, wrote on the airplane back from Chicago. I've written in hotel rooms and doctor's offices, stuff like that. Cause Sometimes the news just doesn't wait for uh, wait for like when you're scheduled to work. And I'm like, even though uh, people might think that comics news like doesn't measure up to kind of real world uh, breaking news, like we found um, over the years that we've been reporting that people have an intense interest in comics, and so do we. So we there's basically people that want to read it, and we want to read it. So we try to communicate that information and basically add our experience and kind of give it context. And how do you stay on top of the news? Are you looking at press releases that people send you, or are you going out and going through certain sites that you know that are reliable? Because for me, I find it very fascinating these days, especially with so much content out there. How do you sift through all that and find the gems? Um, someone smarter than me explained it as it's like triage in like an ER room. It's not that dangerous. It's not that uh, life or death, but it's like drinking out of a fire hose. I get PR from publishers. I read websites. Like I read uh, reliable websites. I read uh, websites that aren't reliable because from time to time they are and from time to time they aren't. So you kind of know what you're reading to kind of know, is there truth in there? Or just to get basically a tip for something else. Like we're also contacting people all the time where – like I talk to people on email and by the phone all the time. Like I was surprised when I first took this full time as how much interviewing doesn't basically end up being published because we're just basically 
asking questions. Like uh, my whole job is about asking questions. And sometimes they give me the answers to do a story. And sometimes the answers really isn't worth a story, but it may factor into something else down the line. So it's basically triage, just taking in all this information and just be able to sift through it and basically to know what's newsworthy what interesting but also to be able to fact check it which if like if right. anybody reads online news that's the key like a thing that distinguishes news sites is how much uh, fact checking like is going on and just uh, what words mean and uh, showing your sources and being upfront about kind of where the information comes from and kind of what is your spin and kind of what's going on especially these days um super important for sure um let's talk about how you got to this point so i know we talked about your interest in comics at an early age we talked about what you were doing for newsrama because i know you had mentioned so many different you were working at marvel at one point i would love to hear about that like what was that journey getting to this point like well like i said in high school and college i wanted to draw comics and then i like I was sat down and told basically practically how hard it is to draw comics. There's maybe only a couple hundred people in the United States that get to draw comics for a living. That's based on skill. That's based on uh, work ethics, things like that. So because of that, I transitioned into doing graphic design. This was in the 90s. So I did that until about 2003. And then I decided to go freelance. And for freelance, you get uh, multiple clients. So part of that is I decided to do a little bit of writing on the side. I guess hobby journalism, we called it. And that's how I started writing for, like I wrote for CBR first, and then I, I began writing for Newsarama. So I kind of just did that on the side. But my main thing was still graphic design, freelance. Um, then there came a point where my main client, uh, when I was doing graphic design, kind of went out of business unexpectedly. So then I realized that I needed to kind of uh, diversify in terms of clients. So if that happened again, I wouldn't be stuck in a hole. So that led me to pursue more graphic design clients, but also to pursue more uh, writing clients, basically for comics journalism clients. So at that point, I began basically writing, like I took as much work as Newsarama would give me at the time, but also expanded to write for Publishers Weekly for their print edition and for their online edition. I began writing for a website called iFanboy. They're a popular comics podcast, and they're expanding into doing comics news and comics commentary. But like I also began uh, working for Marvel. They at first they for many years, for many uh, decades, in fact, they've had a print magazine of different kinds. It's been called Marvel Age, Marvel Spotlight. It's kind of an in-house magazine talking about the comics that are coming up. So it um, interviews people. But like I wouldn't say it's biased towards Marvel, but it's just it's just all uh, Marvel content. Like if you're a Marvel fan, then you want to read this to find out about the new Hulk or the new X Men. Um, so that expanded from writing for their print edition to also writing for their website. And through that, like I, like I was also chosen to write several chapters in a physical book called The Art of Spider-Man. It basically breaks down the major artists on Spider-Man and the, basically the artistic shifts over the decades. So I wrote several chapters for that at Marvel. Um, so like I wrote for Marvel until about 2013 when I decided to step away from that. Like I started uh, picking up uh, different clients. Some were long-term clients. Some were just like a like a gig here and there. Like um, about three years ago, I was asked by Life Magazine to write several stories about comics. They had a like an edition of their magazine coming out, just about the rise of the superhero in movies. So I wrote several articles for them about that. For instance, profiling the top ten uh, women in superhero comics over the decades. So I got the spotlight 
the ones that everyone know, like uh, Wonder Woman, but I also got a spotlight Tank Girl from the British comics and also uh, Jenny Sparks from the Authority comics in the late uh, 90s that everyone should read, but it's very out of print these days. Um, so like, so I got to bounce around and write for different places. Uh, as you mentioned, I wrote for MTV for a time, uh, writing about comics, writing about movies, finding stories where I could write about both. Like I did an um, interesting story comparing comics to the Fast and the Furious franchise. Interesting. Yeah. So like, so like I hadn't seen the franchise at the time. So like over the span of the day, I watched maybe five Fast and the Furious movies, like back to back to back to back to back. And I was able to write the story and that was pretty interesting. But since uh, 2015, I've primarily been uh, Newsarama has been my home with some brief forays into freelance work here and there, such as the Life magazine, and uh, I'm working on an upcoming book and some other projects. Do you want to talk about the – I would love to hear about the book and the projects. Um, the book is something I've thought about. It's gone through several um, iterations over time. Originally, it was going to be a story series, going to be something else. But I've realized there hasn't been, to my knowledge, a definitive book kind of exploring kind of where superheroes came from. You mean origins or – yeah, the um, the origin of basically superheroes as a genre, as a uh, concept, and, and how it predated comics by about 50 years from the research I've done so far. So I'm uh, working on a book tentatively titled Cape Fiction that basically goes into superheroes starting in the late 1800s in prose fiction and how it expanded to pulp fiction with things like Flash Gordon and The Phantom and then how they transitioned the comic books with Superman, and there's a like interesting foray there on how um, that became like the default visual design of comics, and how that shares an origin with pro wrestling in a weird kind of very um, interesting way. How it all like for them, it's the costumes goes back to circus strongmen. There's a, a tangent that I want to go on there, kind of exploring <laughs> that, but also exploring superheroes through the years and how it became a, a niche thing in the 1940s and 1950s to the congressional act that uh, worked to basically ban pretty much most kinds of comics, except for superhero comics, made superheroes the default, basically, genre for comic books in the 1960s and 1970s, and then how the transition of superheroes to cartoons, such as the Super Friends, like other shows, helped basically educate young children before they could even read about what Superman is, what he looks like, what a superhero is, and kind of this boiling it down to this core idea of basically a cape, uh, somebody that does good. It's kind of more than a crusader or a vigilante and kind of exploring the different concepts and just what a superhero is and what a superhero um, isn't. And at the end of the book, I hope to go into kind of the transition into the super popularity of the superhero uh, movie genre and how that's um, affecting comics and affecting kind of superheroes and other mediums as well. So before superheroes, there there were comics, obviously. Why do you think that those rose in prominence as opposed to like the serials that they had before? Um, superheroes really weren't popular in comic strips. That's like newspaper strips. And, but when they started doing comic books, those were literally the newspaper companies would collect the comics that they had printed, basically fold it in half and staple it and turn it into a comic book so they could sell copies of their book. And for Superman, I like got like that hit at, like at a point in time in the late 30s where you had this like then comic books were cheap kids uh wanted to read comic books and it was going out of the depression into world war ii that became a very popular thing captain america as well became really popular during world war ii both in the united states and also shipped out to troops overseas 
and basically printing of books was one of the things that wasn't rationed. So it, like it was like a cheap, disposable form of entertainment for people. So I think uh, um, that really uh, got people excited. But as a genre, just it's like modern Greek mythology. Like you have these larger-than-life characters that are, in many cases, morally kind of perfect. They're kind of basically what you want to be or what people want you to be in terms of being good and just and just seeing that but also just the visual like for the time like the printing of basically four color comics was something a lot of people haven't seen because printing technology uh in the early uh, 20th century basically changed uh, dramatically so seeing these color comics as a cheap form of entertainment was something i think kids and adults really gravitated to but after world war ii superheroes as a genre of comics declined and like another a genre such as romance comics, war comics, crime comics, horror comics really grew. Um, but there was a congressional act in the 1960s about basically because uh, adults saw comics as being a kid's uh, medium. So when these kind of more horrific crime and horror books were being seen by adults, they didn't want the kids to read them. So right. some things uh, happened in Congress that the comics industry decided to self-regulate uh, itself, and they instituted something called the Comics Code that prevented death on screen, that prevented like vampires. Like vampires were banned from comics for like twenty, thirty years. So wow, like the vampires that, that, um, that you saw weren't like if you really read the comics, they weren't technically vampires. They may look like vampires, but the publishers made it in such a way that if they were ever called out for it, they could basically explain, well, right. you, uh, well, you can see here they're not really vampires. They're just pale, undead creatures that, that suck blood. They're not vampires. <laughs> so Smart. So they went through several ways to get around that. But in through the uh, legislation and the comics code, superheroes kind of became this thing that would still basically pass like, like everything, and go basically not be obstructed. And so um, there was a revival in superheroes beginning in the early 1960s with DC reviving kind of uh, Superman and different characters. And then that spawned Marvel to kind of take a page from their book and begin publishing superhero books themselves. Because Marvel, they did superheroes in the 1930s and 1940s, but then when the markets changed, they moved out of superhero comics, the Western comics, the romance comics, the monster comics. Uh, but when the DC started reviving their superhero books and were successful, Marvel basically saw that and basically took their top editor, who, who was Stanley at the time, and then their top artist, Jack Kirby, who was a versatile artist, but at the time was mainly doing uh, Marvel's monster books to do a superhero book. And you had Fantastic Four number one, but they hadn't done superheroes in so long. So if you'll read the first issue of Fantastic Four, they're not really superheroes. They don't have superhero suits. They're kind of more um, supernatural monster books. But then they uh, kind of figured it out and uh, went into costumes and being kind of the, went into the mold of what superheroes became, ultimately. Did you ever expect – I know you mentioned talking about the rise of superhero movies. Did you ever expect it to become the phenomenon that it has? Um like when did I expect as a when, kid? As a kid, as yeah. As a kid growing up, reading comics and well, yeah. Because as a kid, like like I wasn't aware of things like The Godfather when I was a kid, but I was aware of the Superman movie from the um, the Christopher Reeves. Like I remember going to see mm -hmm. Batman in uh, nineteen eighty nine and seeing the Batmobile at my local mall. Like I just thought that superheroes were the big thing, and then as I became a teenager. 
in the 90s, like I saw, like there was very uh, various attempts to do superheroes, to do comic books that didn't work. Right. There was uh, things like uh, Dick Tracy, not really superhero, but kind of iconic comic book style translated to movies. You have things like The Crow that I've had long arguments with people trying to say, is The Crow a superhero or not, which is very interesting. And what's your, like, what's your take on that? In, um, I think he is. Like, like I think uh, superheroes is a, a broad term that can take in a lot of different kinds of that, things. Yeah, that's like, an interesting uh, one. If you compare, uh, basically, so like the crow to Superman may, may seem far apart, but like the crow to Batman, they each have code names. They each have basically distinguishing costumes of some kind. Like um, for crow, it's a painted face. The crow has superpowers. The crow saves people. He doesn't have a cape. He, yes, he doesn't wear like like underwear on the outside, like some <laughs> superheroes are like, like kind of typecast. I'm into, but I think it is. Um, and then you have uh, things like uh, like movies that are inspired by uh, superhero comic books, but aren't actually based on comic books. Like uh, you have The Incredibles in the early 2000s, but then in the 90s you have uh, movies like Darkman that was heavily based on comics, but didn't actually uh, wasn't actually based on a specific comic, just kind of inspired by. Um, like, but there was good and bad, but, um, like once you began seeing like things like Spider-Man and the original X-Men movie, like you kind of see a template for how Hollywood could take advantage of this, like Hollywood and the movie film industry has been kind of unknowingly kind of preparing people for this by basically cartoons of the super friends in the 1960s and the 1970s cartoons for other characters in the 1980s, the X-Men cartoon in the 1990s, the Spider-Man cartoon in the 1990s, kind of like the kids that were watching those cartoons are basically growing up now. And sometimes it's uh, nostalgia, but in broader terms, it's just acceptance of superheroes for all like their weirdness as a like interesting kind of story to be told as movies and i do think that there will be a time where there's less uh, superhero movies than there are now but i think it's it's a part of culture like if there still was like movie galleries uh blockbusters things like that like i think that there would be a superhero section now and i think there'd be a superhero section 20 years from now kind of like um the western or sci-fi or things like that nature do you miss uh real tangible video stores where you can kind of flip through the movies or are you kind of all for what's happened with netflix and um, digital. I was like, I was having a, a conversation about that. Like, um, was it the National uh, Record Store Day was like earlier this month? And kind of like um, comic book stores still have that where you can flip through books and uh, um, the record right. stores that are still uh, still around uh, let you flip through the records. But for movies, you don't really have that experience to uh, browse. And I think that idea of like, so I browse on Netflix and you always kind of wonder, like, am I seeing the whole thing or is like this Netflix um, algorithm uh, basically feeding what you, what they think that you want to see. So yes, I would like it. Um, Like here personally, like it's weird. Like my local doctor's office, like used to be a blockbuster that I attended since I was a kid. So it's weird to be able to be, like be able to sit in I don't know some like outpatient room and realize hey this um this is where the I don't know the new release uh, <laughs> was, uh, twenty years ago and now it's like a, a doctor's office but I think it's just um, changing cultures uh, basically things change like over time I'm glad we still have bookstores so there's that that's the closest thing to it I guess uh, going back to movies do you think DC will ever uh, figure out its own movie universe situation? Definitely. Um, DC had it figured out up until what, about uh, seven years ago? Like, but then they decided to maybe 
take a page from the Marvel playbook where it needed to be all like I'm interconnected and with basically interconnectivity becomes basically layers of bureaucracy. And yes, basically Marvel's been able to achieve that, but it doesn't mean that that's the only way to do movies. Like I think um, the Wonder Woman movie stands on its own really well. Like I think the Suicide Squad movie, like it, like isn't the greatest movie, but if it was allowed to stand on its own and some of the scenes were edited out, I think it, that movie would be slightly better. There's, like I think just uh, DC's kind of going through a phase of understanding what modern superhero movies are and just uh, realizing that the way that Marvel does it isn't the only way to do it, and they can go back to the success that they had on the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, the Tim Burton Batman movies. Let's uh, uh, forget about the other Batman movies of the 90s, um, maybe like uh, the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman movies, and then the most recent Wonder Woman movie. They, uh, they have a template in their own archives of how it could work, and um, they're, from reading the news and reporting on it, like it seems like they have a lot of ideas, and, and some sound really interesting. Uh, just a matter of deciding, basically, what are the good ideas and what are the not-so-good ideas, and basically... Part of the reason that Warner Brothers bought DC back in the, I don't have it in front of me, I think late 1960s, 1970s, is because DC had this library of characters that they're now basically stewards of and they own and just figuring out ways to use them that doesn't uh, ruin the concept. Like for as, as bad as the Justice League movie is, like people wanted to see a good Justice League movie. Like I think if they had the right director and the right uh, writer and knew of a way to present it, in terms of marketing and public relations, we could see a great a Justice League movie in two or three years. It just depends on the right people. I hope so. We shall see. We shall see. Um, so going back to, to your writing, um, I know you talked about kind of the history is everything there of superheroes and their story. What about fiction works? Are there either comic books or fictional stories that you're working on or do you want to shout out or any other projects? I'm definitely on fiction stuff. Some of it's prose fiction. Up until a few months ago, I had a little bit of reluctance right. to work on actual comics while covering comics. Exactly. But there's things that I want to do, either modern adaptations, fairy tales, new stories. Um, like I, I report all the time on comics creators announcing projects that never happen. And as a fan, that gets me really disappointed. Right. Like I, I still, in my head, can tell you 20 projects that were announced by Warren Ellis and Matt Fraction a couple years ago that I know are never going to happen. But because they announced it, it's just enough for me to hang my hat on <laughs> and just think, like, what if it came out? And it was, what if it happened? And there's the same thing outside of comics as well. But it's just, I get so excited when uh, upcoming projects are announced that when I announce upcoming projects, I, I try to wait to announce it till I'm relatively sure that it's going to come out. Like that's why I talked about my nonfiction book, Kate fiction. I'm relatively like, like I don't have a contract signed yet, but I'm relatively sure that I'll be able to get it out in some form or another in the, in the next year or two. I respect that. Especially these days, it's so easy to talk about what you're going to do. There's so much talk refreshing to hear that you're not just like, yeah, I'm working on this or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I'm a big fan of uh, Guillermo del Toro, but one of the things that I like it's a tough pill to swallow is he gets so excited about projects that he announces that he's on these projects and then they never end up happening. Some is not his fault, some are financing problems, things like that. But like I've had just days where I've just read on the high that like uh, Guillermo del Toro announced that he's doing an adaptation of In the Mouth of Madness, and it's kind of one of those things that it's happening and then they say it's canceled, then they say it's coming back. At one point, he announced that him and Neil Gaiman were doing a Doctor Strange movie, and that never happened. But still, when that was announced back in the early 2000s, just 
I just remember riding that high and basically, man, this is the movie I'm going to get to see. And then basically the years afterward of uh, regretting getting my hopes up because it didn't come out. So I, I try to balance it. And now reporting when new projects are announced, I take everything with a grain of salt. Is, is it going to actually happen? Is there going to actually be a movie? So I try to not to be too pessimistic because I want to be excited about comics and comics-based projects and everyone else. But I try to uh, limit my expectations. So what's the what's the goal in the in the long term for all this? I mean, obviously, it sounds like you're very accomplished and already at what you're doing. What is what's next? What's your plan? Um, I just want to write more. Like I enjoy um, like editing now, and like editing has taught me a lot about uh, writing. But I want to someday get to the point where I can just write full time. Like whether that be fiction or nonfiction. Like I don't think in today's day and age, like I don't need to just write fiction or just write nonfiction. It's just really just write, like get these ideas that I have out. Like even if most of it doesn't get uh, published, just writing things down on paper and getting ideas out is just helpful psychologically for anybody. And that's a point that I want to get to hopefully someday. Like I'll still be able to afford the, uh, the house me and my wife I live in and pay all the bills and stuff like that. That's great. Are you excited for Westworld tonight? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I try not to get my hopes built up. But right. I rewatched the first season, and I'm just uh, just trying not to because Westworld and some of its best parts reminds me of the best parts of Lost. And oh, definitely. How bad that, <laughs> like everyone knows how exactly. bad that ended. I'm, I'm always like, I don't know, like um, uh, maybe it's a fault of me, but I'm so, uh, I guess some would say jaded that I try not to get too excited about anything because i don't know like it could all end in disappointment but yes like i am excited to see what the first episode is awesome and are you going to write about it or do you is that not comic book related enough to be something you would write about um that's interesting like when new projects are announced stuff like uh westworld when it was initially uh, announced we did cover it uh not to the degree we would cover something that came from comics but we covered it to a degree, and I pay attention to traffic and uh, things like that. And with consulting with everyone else, we decided to kind of tone back on it because there's some other sites that have the ability and the resources and uh, the audience to basically cover it more and for it to turn back. So for uh, like, I wouldn't expect any Westworld coverage on Newsarama. Who knows though? Um, they might bring in some I don't know comics. Uh, Easter egg in there where I get to write about it. Like uh, just speaking of Lost, that they featured a comic in there once. It was an actual comic that I actually got to spend like an hour kind of uh, researching where the comic came from, like who did it, and I could write it as a because it's about uh, comics. Yeah. Just, the kid that uh, had the comic. Was right? Lost was uh, secondary, but I got to basically write about what I was uh, watching that had nothing to do with comics, but there was a connection to comics. So this is a random one: comic book TV shows on the CW network. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I'm glad that there is a network for that. For a time, I was watching them religiously. Like I wouldn't even tape them. I would just watch them all live. And that was just who I was as a person. But now we're fortunate to be in an era where we have so much good material that I don't have time to watch it all. Like, <laughs> you can be choosy. Uh, Black yeah. Lightning the best show that they got. And like I think if people would give it a chance, like that, um, that'd be great. I like the camaraderie of... Uh, DC's uh, Legends of Tomorrow, like, and I like the kind of hopefulness of The Flash, even though it seems like a hopeless show because he always gets something torn away from him. Like, it really has a hopeful aspect that uh, reminds me of the Silver Age of comic books, the, not just the Flash comics, but it's, it has a hopefulness that, especially in contrast to the DC movies, which is kind of uh, exciting for me. 
Now, I'm going to throw out a random comic. Like I grew up reading comics, but I actually had never read this comic. And then I've recently been revisiting it, um, Watchmen. Would, yeah. you, would you say that's one of the best comic books ever? And if not, do you have a, another uh, comic book that would beat it? I know, I'm sure you get this question all the time, like bests, or I don't know if you even have one. And then the second part would be, what are your thoughts on a Watchmen like HBO series or Netflix series? Saying something's the best is always a hard thing, and people that read uh, Newsarama now will be uh, questioning it because we do top ten lists. It's like the best of this, the best of that, and it, it, like it's all personal. Like what's the best and and what's the favorite? Um, like I do say, like on the Watchmen, like like in its time, such as today, is, is one of the best written, best drawn comics. Like those are two guys that were at the top of their game doing it. Um, I, for me personally, like I would argue, like I like uh, From Hell better than I like um, The Watchmen. And it's me, like I've read The Watchmen too many times, like for probably a 10 year span. Like I read it uh, once a year just to kind of understand it from different kind of viewpoints. But I don't think it's the best. Like I don't think there's one best comic. It depends on the person. Like I uh, try, like um, one of the things that I enjoy doing is uh, meeting people that either don't read comics but want to read comics or just getting into it uh like so try to interview them as it were and find out what their interests are and then basically find something to recommend that is going to be good for them it's uh, sometimes giving someone i don't know the quote-unquote the best thing like ever may not be the best thing for them if they can't really understand it at the time some of the best comics are some of the ones that are kind of hard to get into like if you really don't understand the mechanics of comics and complex like uh, page turns and just uh, storytelling kind of leaps that happen in comics that just hard for like a casual uh, reader to grasp, but it can be really rewarding. But, but like I want like everybody to find what their favorite comic is and not have to worry about what finding the best comic is. But that being said, I recommend 20th Century Boys. Okay. By, uh, like it is a manga it like you mentioned lost you mentioned westworld like if people like those two like i'd recommend picking up 20th century boys it's uh it's been out for years so the whole collection is out it's about 15 or 20 volumes it's like 300 pages of volume but you'll just breeze right through it and yeah i'm writing it down right now we'll look into that cool man so i think we've got to wrap up but before we do we didn't cover star wars and i feel like Sure, let's go. Let's yeah. <laughs> let's go. Um, thoughts on Last Jedi? Thoughts on uh, you know? It's very. I feel like people are pretty polarized about it, with a lot of people thinking that it's pretty awesome, and a lot of people being like, "What the fuck?" So, do you lean on either side, or are you kind of like, "I'm just happy with uh, any Star Wars movie"? Um, I lived through the time when there wasn't new Star Wars movies to look forward to, and I like I read those Del Rey prose books and the Dark Horse comics. So I'm I'm glad there's new Star Wars movies. Like every Star Wars movie does not have to be great. Like I went to the theaters to see the Ewok movies. Um, like those were made for TV, but in certain places, including my town, they showed them on a movie theater, and it was just the worst thing ever. <laughs> but um, for the Star Wars: The Last Jedi, I saw it three times in theaters, and I could really appreciate it in a different way than I did The Force Awakens. Like it still took what was told before and retold it in a new way. Like J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens was nostalgic and kind of recycling the elements and telling them in a new way with new characters that looked more like the people that are watching movies these days. For The Last Jedi, it like I know some people struggled with the idea of uh, this isn't the Luke Skywalker that they had built up in their minds for 20 years. But I think that was part of the story. And the director basically included that like in there, that he was 
no doubt basically a huge Star Wars fan trying to wrestle with the idea of, am I going to be able to portray Luke Skywalker the way that people have built up in their heads for the past 20 years, what he'd be. And then the story became about kind of unpacking that through basically fictionally, basically how the Jedi were built up to be like this mythical best thing ever and how they really were. Some were good and some were bad. And I kind of think kind of deconstructing that idea was a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow just because Star Wars the absence of new Star Wars material, like a new a movie level Star Wars material, like allowed people to basically build up in their mind this kind of calcified, nostalgic view of the way that Star Wars movies should be. But also, like good comics, going back to that, it let them uh, imagine what would the next Star Wars movie look like. And I think uh, The Force Awakens looked more like the Star Wars movie, movie right. that people imagined, while The Last Jedi benefited from being after The Force Awakens, that it didn't have to kind of be this kind of weaponized nostalgia to kind of get people back on board so The Last Jedi could look at the movie franchise through a modern lens and kind of turn it into movies about today, not movies about movies that had happened 20, 30 years ago at this point. People have said that Last Jedi is is an out with the old and in with the new kind of love letter to, or, or maybe not a love letter, to the old generation, the new generation, and kind of like, obviously, almost, if not all, the old characters are gone now. Would you agree that it's Disney's way of saying, you know, you guys are great and all, but we're moving on? Um, I think Disney was wise. Like They knew that eventually either that choice would be made for them just by the actors sadly passing away or basically writing it out on their own terms where they could basically write the final, I don't know, it could be the final Luke Skywalker story. It, could, it, it probably is the final Han Solo story. They may not be able to tell the final Leia story, but this time was coming and for Disney to decide to tackle that and not just, uh, I don't know, build people up for it not to happen. I think that was just, uh, yes, that's a, probably a financial decision ultimately, but just the same way that the, the original star Wars, a new hope basically took elements of like flash Gordon and basically out with the old and in with the new of basically refocusing it into a then modern for 1976, 1977 aesthetic. And I think this kind of does the same thing. And for the people that like the old movies, and the old stuff, those are still there. And I'm sure with a number of movie, Star Wars movies they're doing, they're going to be doing more Star Wars movies like that. But with Last Jedi, they're also like able to do Star Wars movies that basically is based on the past, but isn't chained down to the past. Yeah, I guess only time will tell what, uh, what becomes of the uh, upcoming films. You mentioned the Ewok movies. Did you hear about, I was reading an article about someone um wrote either i don't know what it was in but they mentioned uh basically they were ex they explained that the ewoks were coffee farmers <laughs> did you hear that i didn't know they were coffee farmers <laughs> but i've read this um, interesting thing about kind of exploring kind of the ewoks as basically cannibals like i'm eating like other ewoks and, interesting uh, uh, uh humans and stuff like that how there, there's this dark side to the ewoks some of that's explored like in the movies, and there's actually some uh, supernatural um, elements to the Ewoks that isn't in the movies, but for people that want to go there for the Ewoks, there's a lot of interesting stuff. But there is a lot of deep stuff with Star Wars that kind of isn't touched on that could get really creepy. Like, um, 
I, I forget the director that said this, but just the idea of droids as this kind of unrepresented slave culture, because they obviously show them as having independent thought and some are rebel and some are basically mind wiped. Like in this day and age, like it's hard sometimes to reconcile that. And right. could there be a story told of that someday? Probably not, but. The closest thing is maybe the droid from Rogue One. How he was kind of independent, and but you never really knew how independent he was. But that there's a lot of things hidden in the Star Wars franchise that George Lucas wasn't even fully aware of. But now that it's this living, breathing a universe that I don't know, like in a year from now, you'll be able to visit at, at Disneyland. Right. I think there's a lot of different ways to explore it, not just this fiction, but as kind of this cultural kind of touchstone. People can do Chewbacca expressions no matter if they speak uh, different languages. Like, they, like I think it's a, a cultural touchstone that people can talk about. Yeah, I, I just never really thought about uh, caffeine being in the Star Wars universe. Um, now, you're in Florida, which means that you're closer to Disney World. Star Wars is going to be in Disneyland, right? Not Disney World? Yeah, they're going to be in both. Oh, okay. They're, uh, they're, it's going to debut in Disneyland, and okay. it's going to come later in the year or the year after at Disney World. Cool. But there's a big uh, Disney uh, Star Wars um, Episode Nine coming out at the end of next year, so I bet just for marketing reasons, they'll, they'll make sure that it's oh, yeah. uh, open back then at both places. Um, with that said, I think we got to wrap it up. So. Okay. All right, man. I enjoy talking comics and yeah. the business of comics. and. I think we learned a lot. I appreciate you educating us and and, and taking the time to talk to us. So um, thanks, man. And we really can't uh, thank you enough for all your support. Um, You are our favorite and uh, we appreciate you so much. So um, take care. And for those listening, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week on the Writer Experience Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.